Amen. Thank you, Rob. I love Operation Christmas Child, Kickoff Sunday, which is what this is. Uh, phenomenal ministry. Imagine God giving a vision to Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse to use a shoebox full of trinkets with a life-changing message of the gospel. Great stuff. Uh, love some Operation Christmas Child. No doubt, no doubt. And here's the deal. You guys have been phenomenal over the last several years. I'm talking about six or 700 boxes that we've packed each year, and I know you're, we're going to break that record. So uh, anyway, grab your boxes, fun stuff. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to know the text on the top here is wrong. I made a little mistake in some copy and pasting there, so I own that. But it's Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Some of you read that and think, he's going to preach the same passage again that he did two weeks ago, right? So just mark through that, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of John Calvin, and he wrote probably his life's work. It's called the John Calvin Institutes, and I haven't read them all, but I have picked my way through some of those. Uh, here's what he says at one place. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Now, I think we sort of instinctively know that the knowledge of God is difficult, difficult to comprehend at times, is it not? Difficult to embrace and certainly difficult to apply. Everybody nod your head on that one? On the other hand, I think we need a reality check uh, in terms of the knowledge of ourselves. And this is why. The knowledge of ourselves actually assumes that we have a clear knowledge of God. The, the two go together. Without the knowledge of God, we can't have a true knowledge of ourselves. And two, we naturally just assume, if someone said, do you know yourself like deeply, weaknesses, strengths, struggles, you would say, oh yeah, I know myself. And, and your friends would go, really? Why don't you ask us about yourself? <laughs> and yet, the reality of our condition as humans, the scriptures tell us, is beyond comprehension. And without help from God, it is impossible. Here's what happens. God's help comes from telling us the truth about us from his word. The New Testament actually uses 31 different words or phrases to describe you to you. Here they are. Alienated from God, this is before Christ. Blind, fleshly minded, corrupt, darkened, dead in sin, deceived, defiled, filthy, destitute of truth, an enemy of God, evil, foolish, malicious, envious, pleasure-loving, proud, a refusal to believe guided by Satan, lovers of self, a slave to sin, unconscious of our bondage to sin, and vain. How do you like that for a little caffeine, scriptural, biblical caffeine to wake us up this morning? Scripture continues in many places. 
Jeremiah the prophet puts it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Answer being no one but God. David in Psalms 19, uh, as he is uh, rehearsing truth here, he says, who can discern his errors? Answer, no one. The bottom line is that you and I never, this side of heaven, get to the bottom of our sinfulness. If our forgiveness in Christ depended on this full knowledge of our sin, we would all perish. Thank God it does not. Praise God, though, for his help from his word. Because what the Bible does, it gives us a very clear and at the same time crushing message about the state of our spiritual condition before Christ. And I'm telling you, there's another other place in the whole Bible where three verses tell us that in such a clear and crushing fashion than the passage that Monty preached last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And let me just read them for you again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all, do you know, you know what all means in the Greek? It means all. It means you nice people in here are included here. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These verses tell us of our great need. It tells us of why we need to be born again. It tells us why we need to be saved and why it's so important and necessary. But it also tells us we are so bad, so bad, that this stuff we do on January 1st every calendar year, turning over a new leaf, being more disciplined, I need to improve morally, <laughs> is simply and grossly insufficient to even remotely help us. Somebody say amen. So the more you and I can fully embrace the truth and reality, although it's crushing, of verses 1 through 3, the more beautiful verses 4 through 7 will be. If you really get verses 1 through 3, you will be stunned and shocked by verses 4 through 7. We need a new birth. We need supernatural help. We need a radical help, and praise God for giving us just that in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2 this morning. Now, our text starts with the word, but God, and many of the scholars throughout church history have called these words, but God, the most beautiful two words put together in the whole Bible. I hope you feel that way when we leave this morning. For without them, the actions of God that follow, we are hopeless because of that condition in verses 1 through 3. And before I read our text this morning, I want to show you a picture of what I call my but God moment. This is Belt Dorm in East Carolina. It is ancient. It's so ancient they tore it down a few years ago. It was unair conditioned, but it was in this dorm that I met the Lord Jesus Christ 
That's crazy. I told my story to our community group Wednesday night, and I cried then. And Jenna said, I can't believe you cried. You've told your story a bunch. And I said, I know, and I'm glad I still cry over it. So this morning, we'll get back to that at the end of the sermon. I wanted you to see, though. Let's read together verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The first thing Paul does here is he he really asks this question, or the question is, who is God? And Paul tells us that. As I mentioned, this passage, verse 4, starts with the words, but God. And and that statement uh, is really a short statement. And it takes us from despair, if you would, and hopelessness of verses 1 through 3 to great hope. Like 1 through 3 brings a punch to your gut, and then these two words make us stop and pay attention to what is about to be said. It is telling us that something is about to happen that man cannot do and only God can do. It is similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, where the disciples asked him, then who can be saved? Go read that text, and Jesus' response is, with people It is impossible. With God, all things are possible. That's what these two words give us, this possibility of great hope. God is the subject here. God alone is acting. It is not God plus something. So who is this God that Paul speaks of when he says, but God? Verse 4 tells us. The outline there says, but God, who is rich in mercy... And great in love. It says, but God being rich in mercy or rich in compassion or having limitless wealth in what Rob just talked about that our women are going to study, this hesed love, this kindness, this loving kindness, goodness, favor towards his people, goodliness. How many of you last time you thought, God, you're so goodliness? Promise keeping covenant kindness, this steadfast, faithful love, regardless of the faithfulness of the object of his love. And this mercy is not only who God is, I think what we need to remember, it's always unmerited. Mercy and merit are exclusive terms. They never, ever go together. When you see the mercy of God, immediately you can think it is unmerited and unwarranted and undeserved every time we read it in Scripture. When you read verses 2 through 3, this this phrase in those verses says, We were by nature born that way, children of wrath. Ninety-nine 
99.99% of every person alive who would read that phrase, we are by nature children of wrath, would immediately expect what? To read something coming next about the wrath of God coming upon the children of wrath. And yet God's, Paul writes, but God great mercy and great love. It's, it's a shock in some ways when God, when Paul is describing who God is, and it tells us no sinner is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Many also have said that, and you've probably thought this or you've heard this some way, somewhere, form or fashion, growing up in the church, that the God of the Old Testament is this ornery, stern God, devoid of mercy. God, it'd be just like him to want to send one of his people to the Ninevites, who were, if you do a little Googling on that, one of the most evil cultures in the entire history of the world. So I knew it'd just be like you to do that, and I don't want to be that person. I don't think they deserve your mercy. This term, mercy, is used 70 times in the New Testament as well. So I think biblically, from Genesis to Revelation, we can walk away and say, God loves to show sinners mercy. And if mercy is not enough, here's what Paul does. And he does this in Ephesians a lot. He starts stacking on top of terms, term after term after term, to really try to describe something that in some ways is indescribable. And so he does that here. He adds on this phrase, his great love. He's trying to describe who God is and just put these haymaker terms on top of each other. I thought about, as I thought about God's love, I thought outside of the scriptures, one of the most powerful hymns that describes God's love is from the hymn, The Love of God. It, it does take, I think, a great stab at describing what is really indescribable. Here's some of the words from this hymn. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill to write the love of God of bud above would drain the ocean dry. Hard to describe. To this great love of God, Paul writes in Romans 8 that if we know Christ, nothing can separate us from that love. Think of that. That kind of love says, I'm here, I'm steady, I'm faithful, I'm not going anywhere. I know you are a complete wreck, but you're mine, and I'm staying right here. So before we go any further this morning, I just think it's important for me to ask you a question, a question that I've got to ask myself, a question that you've got to ask yourself and answer. Very important, and that is, is this your view of God? Is that really your view of God, that that's who God is? Because if it's not, it's got to change. And if it doesn't change, you can't trust him. You won't meet with him. You won't run to him. You won't seek him out. And if you have a trivial view of God, of who you are, in terms of verses 1 through 3, God's being rich in mercy won't mean much to you. Yeah, I appreciate God sort of giving me some mercy. I don't really need a lot because, man, I, 
in some ways, I'm a first-round draft pick of God. He's sort of lucky to have me on his team, you know. But if you see who you are, God's mercy and love, as I said before, will stun you, will shock you, it will melt you, and it really will make you run toward him. So who is God? Paul tells us he is a God who is rich in mercy and great in love toward his people. Secondly, Paul lays out now in the other verses, what did God do? Who is God and what did God do? So here's what Paul intends here. Paul intends, if you were reading this text, he intends for his readers to connect verses 2-1, that's in the previous sermon last week, with 2-5. Verse 2-2 with 2-6 and verse 2-3 with 2-7. So I outlined it that way to help you maybe remember it. Our first point here is we were dead in our sins. That's verse 1. But God made us alive together with Christ, verse 5. See how that works? Martin Lord Jones, the great doctor who came to Christ and became a pastor, said this, this phrase, dead in our sins, means we are guilty of double failure. We fail to realize the depth of our sin, and we fail to realize the totality of our sinful nature. And Paul wants these believers, all believers, us this morning who know Christ, to see our double failure in order to be full of gratitude for our salvation. Being made alive together with Christ is, is really speaking of, this is a crucial crucial truth in scripture of our union with Christ or that God quickened us in Christ, that he put spiritual life in us, we were dead, or he regenerates us is another term. Paul is in some ways doing this comparison, meaning what is true of us spiritually is what happened to Jesus physically. Jesus' dead body, as you remember, was taken down from the cross. He was put into the tomb. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave physically. Paul is saying here that our salvation or being made alive in Christ is comparable to that. That you and I were dead spiritually, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us. And at the moment we trusted Christ, at that very moment, not a few years later to see how we were growing spiritually, not a few years later to see if we were doing good spiritually, but at that very moment, we came to life spiritually, and that makes us alive in the spiritual realm. And one day, we'll be alive physically as well. But here, uh, Paul is making that comparison. Many call this the call of God on one's life or the call of God on a believer's life. Uh, sometimes the best way to illustrate a truth is, is look at other scriptures. You remember John 11, you had one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, right? What happened to Lazarus? He, was, he died. There ain't no doubt he died. He was sick. His two sisters, Martha and Mary, they sent for Jesus. They were all worked up that Jesus didn't get there in time. They were failing to understand who he was fully at that point. But Lazarus did die. They wrapped him up in, in a, like a mummy, like they did back in the day, from head to toe, and they put him in the tomb, and the text tells us he was there four days. The King James Version says, he stinketh. 
Then Jesus came to the tomb and told them, remove the stone. And he said three words, Lazarus, come out. And I love this in the text. Sometimes I just laugh reading the Bible. And it says he came out. His hands and feet were bound, the linen straps around his face. I mean, he's pulling all that, you know, 100 yards of, of, of gauze off of him. That's shocking. I'd be cracking up first, right? First, he's alive, but secondly, he's trying to get out of the gauze. This is really a picture, though, of our salvation, our being made alive with Christ. When God calls a man to life, it's like he says, Phil, wake up. Rob, come out. Jeff, let's go. Arise. We were dead. Some say we were the walking dead. Alistair Begg put it this way, we were blind to sin, no ears to hear, no taste for heaven, and the Spirit of God quickens us, boom, at that very moment we become alive in Christ. It's really a direct answer to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1:19 when he says, he tells his readers he hopes they would know, he prays they would know God's surpassing power towards us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised us from the dead, spiritually speaking. In Romans 6, if you want a little more work on what it means to be alive in Christ, Romans chapter 6 is really a running commentary on this whole truth of being made alive in Christ. Verse 4 says, just as Christ raised from the dead, we too are raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 5 says, if united with him in death, we certainly will be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we will also live with him. A man who is spiritually dead lives as if there is no God, or put another way, he lives as if God were dead. But a man who is spiritually alive lives as if God is alive, and he is alive with God because of God. Paul says the first thing that happened, but God, you were dead, uh, nature of your wrath, all that in verse 3, but God, you were made alive with Christ. Secondly, Paul says this. He puts together verse 2 and verse 6 when he says, we were enslaved to the spirit of this age, but God freed us to sit with Christ in eternity. So not only did God make us alive in Christ, but we see here that he raises us up with Christ and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. At the heart of this spiritual truth is our identity. We are 100% now, Paul is saying, identified with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his present position in heaven, which is seated at the right hand of the Father. Being raised with Christ refers to the ascension of Christ. And although we're still here on earth, touch your neighbor, just poke them, make sure they don't mind, ask them, can I poke you on the arm? Like, they're still here. We'll, we'll, we are still here on earth, but we are citizens in heaven. 
we were formerly members of Satan's domain of darkness, but now we live spiritually in a different realm as part of God's heavenly kingdom. In some ways, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, this earth is not our home. Now, if you're old like me, you may remember a guy's name, a singer's name by the name of Tony Bennett. Anybody? Yeah, I got old, old people with gray hair or bald heads uh, raising their hands to Tony Bennett. Uh, I thought about this song this week. He had a song entitled, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Some of y'all will Google that this afternoon. What he meant was San Francisco still holds his affections. Yes, now he lives in Chicago, but he's really a San Franciscan, not a Chicagoan. Rob, I know, Rob's from Chicago. He don't like that. I'll let you take it up with Tony. He lives, now lives in Chicago, but Chicago has no claim on his affections. He's physically in the Windy City, but it's a foreign land to him because his heart is in California in the city of San Francisco. And it's the same way with us and sometimes when we come to Christ. God takes our spiritual heart, he puts it in heaven with Christ. And here's how Paul put it in Colossians 3. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Heaven is to hold our affections. It's heaven that governs our taste. We are certainly physically in this world, but our heart, mind, and actions are not to be governed by this world. This world, as we grow in Christ, has less and less grasp of our own affections. And you've experienced that if you've grown in Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 3, puts it this way, we are to be exiles and aliens. Jesus in John 17 put it this way. He, uh, speaking of his followers, he said this, his followers are not of this world, even, he said, as I am not of this world. That's what changes our identity there. Another way to think of it is, uh, years ago I heard of a story of a missionary. He'd been overseas in a third world country, tough for 40 years, serving God as a missionary. He had got news that he had a year or so to live, had a medical condition. So he comes home uh, to retire and to sort of finish up his life. And as he gets off the boat, he hears all this screaming. He looks over, there's another boat that had pulled up in dock. And there's a huge, a thousand people with a welcome committee, welcome home, wherever this ship had been. And people were getting off of it and hugging and crying. And I mean, quickly he noticed the contrast was, Nobody was there to welcome him home. At first, he felt certainly sad and angry and ticked, and it's as if the Spirit of God reminded him, Sir, you're not home yet. That's how Paul wants us to think about we were enslaved to the Spirit of this age, but now we sit with Christ in eternity. We're not home yet. And then lastly, tells us we were children of wrath, verse 3, but God puts us on display to the world as trophies of his grace and kindness, verse 7. 
So we ask this question, why in the world would God show us such rich mercy, such great love? What indeed is his ultimate purpose? What is the ultimate purpose of God of being made alive in Christ, of our being freed from that sin to sit with him in eternity? What is the ultimate purpose of our salvation? How would you answer that question? If someone, man on the street interview said, what is the ultimate purpose of our being made new in Christ? How would you answer? I love Ephesians 2.7 because it gives us that answer. Let me read it again for us. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see that little phrase, so that, that gives us this purpose clause and it answers the question why. So that, or in order that, our God, who is the source, the provider, the supplier of our salvation, he gets to determine the purpose of our salvation and he says, we are saved via his rich mercy and great love to make us a display, a divine display to a world in need. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 9. He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So in Romans 9, God says he raised up the Pharaoh, the mightiest, most powerful man on the face of the earth, just to show the world that as Pharaoh applied his might and power, in contrast to Almighty God, he was nothing in comparison Pharaoh, in a sense, is the display of God's power. 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes these words. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, this is Paul writing his story, as the foremost of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here, what Paul's saying is, he himself is a divine display, that he is a living demonstration of God's kind patience toward the world's worst sinner. So Paul could beat his chest and say, I'm the man? No. So other sinners would have hope. God does what he does to demonstrate who he is. So others will see it. And what is in this display window, if you would. If you've been to a city, you know, you walk, a big city, walk down the streets, they got buildings on each side, very tall buildings, and on the bottom floors, most of them are glass. And in those, you put a bunch of junk and trash that nobody wants to see, right? No, you put the best of the best on display. What is in the display window here? It is the surpassing and immeasurable riches of the kind grace of the living God in you. <laughs> you and I, 
are trophies of God's grace. That's why he saved us. That God, people would look at us and see us this walking and talking and breathing trophies of grace of the living God, not because of anything we've done, but because God has been so kind and so gracious and so merciful and so patient and so long-suffering and so steadfast with sinners. God is wealthy in grace because he gives it to those who deserve his wrath. We need extreme grace. Based on verses 1 through 3 in Ephesians 2, we need extreme grace because we are formal children of wrath. A little bit of grace ain't going to get her done, folks. This is not a random act of kindness. That's stuff we come up with. This was a very intentionally planned act of kindness that was first thought about before the foundations of the world as God set his kind, gracious affections on you and me. God is kind because you and I have done the sinning, and man, he's done the saving, as one writer said. He uses this phrase, the coming ages, tells us how long his grace and kindness will last. It's a phrase that describes all of eternity. That you and I are pardoned rebels who are now the masterpiece of his grace and kindness and are now on display for all the world to see. As Romans 2 says, it is this kindness that keeps leading us to repent. Always repenting. And returning to him. Paul, the author of the book of Ephesians, many of you may know, some of you may not know, that he was killed because he would not renounce his faith in Christ. He was actually beheaded in Rome by Nero. And when he entered eternity, and I touched on this in the second sermon, second service of the sermon I gave a couple weeks ago, but I want to lay that a little more here. This has been great for me to remember. When he died that day physically, and he was raised in Christ, and he was entered eternity to sit at the right hand of God with Christ, the very people that he had killed, he had killed, and that he had tortured, and that he stole their stuff from, that those very people were there to greet him and cheer for him. It's the darnest thing in the world, is it not? They greeted him with great joy. No one was saying, how did he get here? <laughs> Don't, are you letting him in? That's a sick dude. That dude right there is the guy that killed or had killed my father. No, 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 no. Here's why. Because in heaven, in eternity, they saw fully who they were in verses 1 through 3. And they didn't go, you know what? I deserve to be here. I'm not as bad as Paul. No, they were both Paul and those in whom Paul had killed and tortured were both children of wrath, 
equal sinners, deserving the wrath of God, and yet got the great mercy and love of God in Christ. Hmm. Let me take you back as we wrap up here to our, our sermon to my pictures in Belt Dorm. I told this story the other night, as I said, in our community group, and uh, I've been telling this story for a long time. One of the, personally, one of the greatest gifts God has given to me is my story. And I think one of the greatest gifts he's given to you is your what? Is your story. And part of your story is how you came to Christ, is it not? And I think when we forget that, like we sort of can unintentionally think, you know, I've sort of always been like this or I've always had this love for God and we, we just, we don't remember well. What my story does is helps me remember correctly who I am, who God is and what he has done. So here I am, a rascal and a rebel you think the wildest guy you've ever met in your life, that's me. I'm insecure, and I'm angry, and I'm out to prove my worth to my father. I was red-shirted my second season because of a knee injury, so I'm in pain physically and emotionally. I woke up out of a drunk stupor. I had been in a massive fight where I blindsided, hit a guy in a bathroom, ran from the law with a cast on my leg, got back to my room, went to sleep. At three in the morning, I woke up with a powerful conviction of sin. I, I All I remember thinking was I need to read a Bible. And I literally took a Bible off the shelf my church had given me that was wrapped in plastic, had never been opened, a living Bible. And I lay in the floor that night. No one else was in my room weeping. I get up the next morning, I go to church, and I wept at the back of the church. <laughs> the next morning, Monday, I thought, I need to go to class. All I was thinking was, something's got to change here. I'd heard about Christ. People would share Christ with me. I grew up in a church with good doctrine. I did not know Christ, no doubt. And the first person I see at the bottom there was a guy named Joe Schrader. Just talked to him this week. I said, hey, are you the little guy with the Bible? I'd seen him walking around our dorm. He was with Campus Crusade for Christ. He told me later he thought I was going to just beat him, right? And he said, uh, yeah, and he's a little guy. He's about 5'7". He's sort of stocky and sort of waddles, right, when he walks. And he goes, hey, Patton, how are you? <laughs> All the time, you know. I love you, Patton. And I was like, love you too, Schrader. If I could see you down there, how are you, you know. We had a great relationship. He said, yes, I'm the guy. And I started crying and cursing to tell him how bad I needed to talk to him. I came to Christ and belt to him that day. I didn't understand all that had happened. 
I cannot imagine my life if that had not happened. My gratitude is in full force in my heart when I remember back where God, he didn't call Lazarus that day, he called Jeff. He said, Jeff, you're mine. I know this is mind-blowing that I was the last thing on your mind when you went to sleep in that drunken stupor. But you're mine. Let's go. I want you to take a minute this morning and just reflect back on your but God moment. Your but God moment. And in gratitude, great gratitude, thank God that he would do for you what you could not do for yourself. And then we'll continue to worship. Thank you.